This is case 45 in the Shoya Roku. The pointer. A manifest koan <clears throat> depends solely on right now. The absolute manner distinguishes only itself. If you try to set up gradations or intentionally strive, then all of this is painting eyebrows on chaos or attaching a handle to a ball. So how is tranquility achieved? <clears throat> the main case. Attention. The Sutra of Complete Awakening says, be at all times without deluded thoughts arising. Moreover, with regards to all deluded states of mind, do not try to extinguish them. Dwelling in the realm of delusion, do not add discriminating knowledge. When knowledge is absent, do not distinguish reality. <clears throat> the verse. Sublime, magnificent, courageous, magnanimous, piercing your head in bustling places, walking along in tranquil places, underfoot, string, cut away, imperfectly free. Stop cutting. The mud is gone from the nose. Do not be disturbed. A prescription written on a thousand-year-old paper. Well, today it will be a 2,500-year-old paper. A prescription written on an ancient, on an ancient page, piece of paper. How do we find that piece of paper? How do we administer it? How do we get better? On Friday, I went to the city. I had dinner with uh, Shingaroshi. And we were talking about times we find ourselves in, how essential the practice is. Maybe in our lifetimes this is the, the most essential, the most urgent time to turn to the practice, wholeheartedly uphold it. You know, if we, if we thought that there is such thing as stability, then we fell on our faces. We are a few days away from the unknown, as we always are. It's just that this time the unknown is in our face. 
So to think something drastic happened and things have changed is to hold on to an assumption that things do not change, that there is such thing as stability. We are surprised mostly because we assume that things do not change or will not change. We are surprised because we are deluded. Not because things change. Not because we find ourselves a few days away from something very different, to say the least. So now more than ever, practice is essential. What do we practice? How do we practice? There's no escape of a practice. What do we get better at? A couple of days ago, a few days ago, a prospective student came to observe an Aikido class. And at some point during the class, I got off the mat to see if he has any questions. And he said he was absolutely astonished to see how little energy I was using as I was performing techniques. How little energy I was using in comparison to the attacker. I explained that in Aikido training, we don't just study technique, we also study the way we move and how, we, how can we more efficiently exert energy or how to exert less energy. And at the beginning of practice, we don't even, we're not even aware of how much extra and unnecessary energy we exert during practice. And of course, over time, we become more in touch with the body and more composed in the mind. So the movement becomes more efficient and less exhausting. So there's an extra there. There's an extra that we learn little by little to not create, not add on, not put on. what is going on. And the extra is not only in the movement or the technique. And it's not just due to a lack of experience. Right? A large portion of what causes inefficient movement has to do with added thoughts, has to do with the mind's activity has to do with expectations, judgments, and emotions that arise automatically. So, in relation to Aikido, this guy who came to watch class couldn't really understand that. So I wanted, to, I wanted him to have a personal experience or personal understanding of what I was trying to point at. And I, I asked him, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm retired now, but I was a pilot for over 20 years. So 
So I asked him to refer back to the time when he was a beginner. First few years of flying a, maybe a commercial airliner. Well, he wasn't a beginner then, but still, the responsibility of flying a commercial airliner is, is huge. And I asked him to refer to how he was feeling when he was doing that, when he was flying the plane. And he said he remembers being exhausted after every flight. And then with time and experience, and of course he learned to be more relaxed. He learned to relax into and to trust what he's learning, what he learned. And then he said that at the beginning there, were, there was a lot of fear, a lot of energy wasted on thoughts. What if I screw up? What if I mess up? What if, and of course, got 200 passengers in the back that if you screw up, they may not make it to the destination. It's a lot at stake. So it's natural. It's natural for the thoughts and emotions to arise. And those thoughts and emotions don't necessarily disappear. It's just what happens with time and experience is that we don't pay much attention to those thoughts. We don't feed them. They do still arise, but we don't feed them. We don't go anywhere with those thoughts. We direct more energy to what needs to be done rather than to what we think about, what if I screw up? What we think about uh, scenarios, possibilities, what if? I mean, there are many what ifs. There are many scenarios we create, and we create them, we weave them diligently out of our own karma, baggage, habits whatever it is, that we bring with us. And then little by little, we learn to direct more attention to what needs to be done. And the more we do that, the more efficient we become, the less energy we waste. The more we are able to see the extra and not feed it, the more efficient we become. Because every profession has its own natural learning curve and anything we get better at, we become naturally more efficient. But the other forces that play a role in the process, the other forces are there. And what we learn is not just how to get better at the profession or at the whatever it is we're doing. What we learn is something a lot deeper, a lot more fundamental, that transcends any learning curve. Any learning curve. And is universal. So in terms of practice, what does it mean? 
What do we practice? What we bring with us is what is triggered at the time of learning, at or through the learning curve. And what we bring, and the good thing about that is that we always have access to what we bring with us because it's always there, regardless of what we are learning, regardless of what we are faced with. It's the good news because in practice, in what we call practice, that is what we look at. Nuts and bolts, the food, the bread and butter of what we work with. I mean, commonly speaking, when we say to practice, we, there is some something specific that we practice. We tell our kids, if you want to get good at math or piano or basketball or soccer or whatever, take time to practice. You have to practice on a regular basis, on a daily basis. We know that. We know it when it comes to something specific, but do we know it when it comes to something that is open, such as Zen practice? It is undefined, essentially. It's not that it's not tangible, it is just undefined. It is not like practicing a piano, although it is in practicing a piano. It is not like learning math, getting better at that, although it is there alongside that process too. Is always there. Which again is the good news because we always have access to what we as Zen practitioners need to attend to, to practice, to get better at. And practice means doing over and over and over and over again. Right? Which in Zen means to keep returning to our most basic and our most fundamental state of being over and over and over and over again. To keep going back to a place of no place, a time of no time, and a self of, self of no self. And in that process of returning to oneness, we are going to keep encountering the extras created by the thinking mind. And when and if the level of awareness is raised, we recognize how we essentially blind ourselves. How we rob energy from ourselves. Often at most crucial times. And then we think, well, I'm exhausted because I just did this and that, but not quite often. Often it's because of what, where my attention goes. So we exhaust ourselves. I mean, even as a beginner, even in Aikido, why, why can't we be beginners? What's wrong? What's wrong with 
screwing up, quote-unquote, messing up, making mistakes. What's wrong with that? Why, why can't we just make mistakes and learn? The stress does not come from making a mistake. The anxiety is not born from that. The exhaustion is not there. We blind ourselves. We are like diligent bricklayers working day and night, putting mortar into molds, create perfectly chiseled bricks, and then stack them up carefully using good quality cement, building a solid wall, one wall after another. And we end up blocked, unable to move. Every direction we look, there is a wall. And it feels very solid. Of course, for us, it feels very solid because this is exactly what we do. This is, those are the walls that we build with our sweat, tears, blood. Familiar walls. Others may not see that, but we see that. Others come and say, well, just put that foot forward. Just raise your arm. Just do this. Just do that. Well, that's simple. But the wall, it seems as if the wall is preventing us from raising the arm, from taking a step, from turning to the right, going to the left. And we feel paralyzed often. I was talking to this person, the older woman, who lost her driving license just because she forgot to renew it. And enough time passed by that she couldn't renew it and she had to go through the process, and she has to go through the process of taking an exam, taking lessons, because in that country where she lives, you can't just go and take an exam. You have to take a certain amount of lessons before you are eligible to take a driving exam. So she's back at the beginner's saddle on that seat. And what she's encountering is way greater than learning to drive. She knows how to drive. But then, of course, the fears of dealing with expectations, having somebody testing me. And she failed twice so far after taking a bunch of lessons. All our stuff from the past comes up. Am I, be, am I going to be adequate? Can I do that? The fact that I can do that disappears. And the attention goes elsewhere. And the last time, she's last time she failed, she failed because she could not, there was a sign she didn't see. She knew what that sign meant. She knows what the sign means. 
if she could only see it. It was, you know, bright daylight, so the sign was there to be seen, but she couldn't see it. Because the attention was swallowed by the fears of failing, by not succeeding. She, the moment she sat in that driver's seat, she already, in her mind, failed. So all that was left was to make sure that the actions match the expectation of failing. Well, I can fail. I'm good at that. There's so much extra. So blinding. All we have to do is just direct our attention to what's needed. To things as they are, not to as they seem. We assign so much to things that does not that actually does not arise from the thing itself and is not even needed. Now I teach kids classes and the kids, especially the young ones, they have this fascination with their color belts. They always play with them. And at the beginning of class, we, we sit quietly with the bell and I hit it a few times and I tell them to just listen to the sound and not move, keep their eyes closed, breathe in and out, and keep their hands together. And their hands are independent of their body, they just move on their own, fumble with the bells. So I asked them once, after sitting for a couple of minutes, I asked them, why do we have a belt? What's the purpose of a belt? So, one kid said, so we could see the grades, we could see who, the levels of each of, the, each of us. And there are a couple other answers. And one kid said, something odd, he said, so we know where the hips are. No idea why. <laughs> Uh, I guess that's one way to know where the hip, hips are, so <laughs> uh, it's all white, so. And, uh, and then uh, one of the older kids said to hold the gi together, right, just so it doesn't flap in the wind. And, and the gi doesn't have uh, a bell, I mean, it doesn't have buttons or anything like that or Velcro, so you have no belt, then it's all wide open. So we have to put a belt on. Now, of course, you know, the color of the belt does not make, the, make it hold better. It just looks different. And it has, it has a purpose. It has upaya. It's skillful for the kids. For the adult program, we don't have colored belts. But for the kids, they, do, they need that. They need short-term goals and they need to know they're striving towards something, and so it, it marks that. But it's so easy for us from early on to get caught up in what is essentially upaya. And get caught up in it and then create something around it. We've built something around that. Create a self around 
a color of a belt or whatever it is. Again, extra. The Buddha said to use everything for what it was intended for. It's a great, this is wonderful advice. Use everything for what it was meant for. Anything. Clothing. Right? For example, you put something on. You don't put an image on. You put a sweater on. There is no image. There's just something to put on so you can be warm. That's all. It's not a fashion statement. It's not, look at me, I am, blah, blah, blah. Or I look like. Or even, even the, the gadgets, even the phones, we're so attached to, addicted to. Even that can be used for what it was meant for. Although we may think that it was meant for other things too, for some kind of enhancement of a personality. Look at the phone in comparison to other phones. We, we add extra to things automatically without even knowing, without even paying attention. And because we do it on a regular basis, it actually makes sense to us. Everybody does it. This koan brings up four lines from a 12-chapter scripture named the Sutra of Complete Awakening. And it begins with, Be at all times without deluded thoughts arising. Be at all times without deluded thoughts arising. Sounds great, doesn't it? Now you look at this advice and you think, well, it's wonderful, but I can't do that. How am I going to do that? And that thought, that thought, I can't do that. That is impossible. That is not for me. That is already the extra. There lies the extra. The added thought. You hear this. And then the mind already comments, judges. For me or not for me? Can I do it or will I fail? You know, the sentence ends with a period, not a question mark. Period. Be at all times without deluded thoughts arising. That's it. That's all he's saying. Do we hear that? Do we hear the period at the end? Can we even see that the extra is not arising from that sentence? Or maybe it's better if it ends with an exclamation point, right? Stop, right there. Add nothing. Which means when you experience clarity, 
wake up to being clear. Only this. You experience clarity, that's it. Period. That's all it's saying. And the second line says, Moreover, with regard to all deluded states of mind, do not try to extinguish them. Where do deluded thoughts come from? What and who give them substantiation? They arise naturally. They come up. Deluded thoughts, thoughts that divide. I remember after the elections, we, a day after, we went to Florida for Aikido winter camp. And of course, you know, you show up in Florida and you look around and you think, well, we lost this state, you know, and look around and you see people, you know, and who did they vote for and who did she vote for, who did he vote for, and the mind does that automatically. It's unavoidable. But so what? Deluded thoughts arise. But you know what? Deluded thoughts vanish too. Everything has shelf life. Everything expires, including us. So what? You have deluded thoughts arising. It's the difference between deluded thoughts arising and thoughts of realization. It also vanishes. From clarity to obscurity to clarity from obscurity, it's just on and on and on and on. It's arising and vanishing unceasingly. Do we have to care about that? Do we have to produce something out of it? You know, if we recognize that all thoughts arise out of nothing and have essentially no owner, there is no one there to produce any issue and leave any traces behind when attached to those thoughts. And so what arises is left as is and then vanishes on its own. On its own. And it does if we let it, if we leave it alone. It reminds me one time one of my daughters, my daughters uh, had a, she was in a funk, she was in a mood or whatever was going on. I don't remember exactly what was going on. She was pissed off about something, and uh, Amyogen tried to talk to her to get her out of that. And she said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, she said something along the lines of, just leave me alone, I'll come out of it by myself. And it's like there was something in her that knew that all that's needed is to be left alone, and it's going to work itself out. Just don't talk to me now because I may say something. She didn't say it, but I think that's what she meant. I may say something I don't want to say. I just need to give it time to get out, the, get out of my system. And it did. She was right. 
It's like there is the, the deluded state of being and at the same time there is clarity that is seen, the delusion. And the clarity is saying, leave it alone. It's going to pass, as everything does. It's amazing how wisdom just shows up. Everything has shelf life, so deluded thoughts are rising. Do not try to extinguish them. Do not try to fight them. Don't add bullshit to bullshit. The more you resist, the more it will persist. The third line says, dwelling in the realm of delusion, do not add discriminating knowledge. In the, in the Sandokai, we, chant, we just chanted that a while ago. Within light there is darkness, but do not take it as darkness. Within darkness there is light, but do not see it as light. Light and darkness are a pair, like the foot before and the foot behind in walking. When night comes, only night. When daylight comes, only daylight. The light is inherent in the darkness, and the darkness is, is inherent in the light. It is inherent because it is of the same nature and the same body. Like the foot before and the foot behind in walking, right? Both, of the, both feet are of the same body, but they move one at a time. One at a time, not together. One is down, the other one is raised. You put it down, you raise the other. Day and night, day and night, night and day, night and day. Can't say that one is more important than the other because one is the other. It is not more important than itself. That's why delusion is realization. Realization is delusion. It's of the same body, the same nature, of the same emptiness, of the same insubstantiation. So we do not add discriminating consciousness. It means to not add any extra. It means to live it alone. You experience clarity, enjoy it. You experience delusion, ride it. Ride it. See what happens. Just don't name it. Don't put eyebrows on chaos. It's chaotic, let it be chaotic. And it works, actually. It's like a miracle. The fourth line says, when knowledge is absent, do not distinguish reality. Now we practice for a while, maybe a long time. Maybe we open up the grasping hand of thought. Maybe we're able to see through this old habitual self. Maybe we glimpse into an opening 
when one day the bucket drops, the bottom of the bucket drops, everything opens up. An amazing breakthrough. And for a moment, all the walls are dropped. All the walls. We, we worked so hard to, to build all these years, all of a sudden, are dropped. And you truly feel yourself as one with your surroundings, with everyone. You feel timeless, selfless, and it's amazing. And then there is a thought, I got it, I'm there. How wonderful. That's the extra. That's the discriminating consciousness coming back through the back door. I want a part of this. This feels good. And I want it to stay like that too, of course. I told the story once that years ago, it was a couple of years after I started training in Aikido, I did this technique which complicated and, and I was working with, with, in a group, in a line and, and uh, I ended up throwing this person in, in a way that I was like, I was amazed how smooth it was and how fluent it was, fluid, how effortless it was. When the person, my partner, the, the one who attacked was on the mat in an instant. It's incredible. And then a second later, I began to like it. That was great. I did that. Wow. I didn't know I can do that. That was the extra and that was falling on my face. Because of course the next time came around and couldn't do it. The more I tried, the further removed I was from even slightly remotely experiencing it. it. Took a while to realize I didn't do it. I don't own it. It's not mine. It's nobody's. It happened because for a moment, for that moment, I just got away. For that moment, I wasn't thinking, I wasn't harassing myself, I wasn't trying to do anything. And it happened. And life happens exactly this way. If we let it. It actually wants to flow. We just put roadblocks, one after another. Essentially resisting the inevitable. Huineng, the sixth patriarch, said, Successive thoughts do not stop. Past thoughts, present thoughts, and future thoughts follow one after the other without cessation. He said, if one instant of thought is cut off, the Dharma body separates from the physical body. 
And in the midst of successive thoughts, there will be no place for attachment to anything. If one instant of thought clings, then successive thoughts cling. One instant, one thought clings. And said, so this is known as being fettered, being chained. If in all things successive thoughts do not cling, then you are unfettered, you are unchained. Therefore, he said, non-abiding is made the basis. Non-abiding. This is what we practice over and over and over again. Dwelling nowhere, we arouse the mind that sees and knows how to cut through our story-making habits. Having no fixed abode and no fixed self, we tend to home affairs. We take good care of this body and its natural needs. Because there is a body and there is a name and there is an address. Huineng says, if one instant of thought clings, then successive thoughts cling. Right? This is basic instructions in Zazen. We guide beginners to simply observe thoughts appearing, thoughts disappearing, and to be careful not to engage, not to get hooked, to bite the bait, not to think the thought. Because the second we bite the bait and begin munching on the thought, successive thoughts follow. And we experience chain thinking. We already got hooked into the whole process. And of course, at the end of that, we are exhausted. Of course, we are exhausted. Because it is exhausting. It's like chewing water. One moment we're there, and the next moment we're gone in an instant. But we can come back in an instant. Good thoughts, bad thoughts, pleasant sensations, unpleasant sensations, memories of the past or futurizing thoughts, they're all meaningless. Absolutely meaningless. But we assign meaning and importance, primarily self-importance. only that, they are, they are meaningless, but they are life-restricting when grasped. And that's really where, that's where it's sad, that we suffocate our own lives. And as Huineng said, on the other hand, an instead of not clinging to a thought will, follow by, will be followed by non-clinging successive thoughts, which means which simply means that the thoughts will not cease, it's just that we will not cling, so those thoughts will be, will have no power over us. Just benign thoughts, benign sensations, feelings, memories. We have to bring a so what into our lives more often, or no big deal more often. So what? Because everything is, so what? But it's a so what, it's not a so what of I don't give a damn. 
it's a so what that clears the way to I want to care. And I have the energy it takes to care because I am not absorbed in nonsense. It's all nonsense. The pointer says, <clears throat> a, sorry, a manifest koan, this is magnificent, a manifest koan depends solely on right now. The absolute manner distinguishes only itself. If you try to set up gradations or intentionally strive, then all of this is painting eyebrows on chaos or attaching a handle to a ball. So how is tranquility achieved? Now the word koan means public case. And it's called public case for two main reasons. First, it is dealing with universal experiences we all go through. We all have gone through and we all will go through. These days and thousands of years ago. So what the koan reveals is relevant to everyone. And second, it is always pointing at what is publicly, re publicly revealed in the open domain, right here, right now. What we're practicing is a living tradition that stays alive only through our own authenticity. And only by us realizing the essence right here and right now. That could be meaningful if we do. It's on the spot. It's natural. It's unassuming. There's a story in the Mumonkan about Tokusan who, after many years of being a fierce teacher, became a kind old man who has embodied the Dharma with such depth to such an extent that it was completely forgotten. And I just want to say the first part of the story, one day Tokusan came down to the hall carrying his bowls. Seppo asked him, Seppo was the cook, asked him, or told him, Old Master, the bell has not yet rung, nor the drum sounded. Where are you going with your bowls? Tokusan immediately turned around and went back to his room. Now, commenting on this, Shibayama says, there is no stink of Zen here. He lives with no pretension, no affectation. His transcendental purity is like that of an infant. Nobody can easily reach such state of spirituality. Of course, this is not what we think when we set foot on a spiritual path. We think we're going to get somewhere, become somebody, be wise. And then here he says, such high level of spirituality, like an infant. Talk about turning things around. Right? We practice diligently and wholeheartedly for years, just so we can be simple, plain, humble, satisfied with very little. Be nothing special. And to live and die without making a fuss. To live and die. Naturally. As Dogen said just when he was about to die, he said, when life comes, only life. When death comes, only death.
That would be a great life to live, a life worth living. The verse says, sublime, magnificent, courageous, magnanimous, piercing your head in bustling places, walking along in tranquil places, underfoot, string cut away, I'm perfectly free. Do not budge, the mud is gone from the nose. Do not be disturbed. A prescription written on a thousand-year-old paper. When Huang Po first arrived at Pai Chang, Pai Chang said, Magnificent, clearly outstanding. What did you come for? Huang Po said, Magnificent, clearly outstanding, not for anything else. Calling and answering, understanding each other, echoing each other. And you know, each of us, this life we live, this planet we reside on, is all magnificent, clearly outstanding. All we have to do is just get out of the way and allow this magnanimity to function as it will. Why interfere? Why add any extra to what is already complete? Why put a head on a head? Why create all these complications? Why not live and die naturally, unassuming? What's wrong with that? It's beautiful. I'd like to end with offering a poem. <clears throat> On the shallow turquoise, the waves rise high, spraying shimmer shimmering sparkles across the horizon. From the deep blue, a fish finds its way to the beak of a soaring bird. And then rain, and more rain, wetting what is not dry, quenching what is not thirsty. On and on it goes, without a conductor and without an audience. Just one deep bow, and this magnificent dance penetrates your heart. Thank you.